you have your Bibles, let's open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We are taking a little bit of a break from the book of Ephesians. So one of the things that you learn when you're a pastor is there's a few Sundays that you can get in trouble. Like if you don't do a good Easter, you can get in trouble. Like Christmas Eve is important. Mother's Day is one of those days, right? And so as I was tracking in the book of Ephesians, our passage didn't entirely match up with the sentiment of how we wanted to honor our mom. So what I'm going to do is this week we're going to do a little In the Weeds podcast, and we'll kind of walk through some of that. Um, But I wanted to kind of revisit a passage as we think about Jesus, as we turn our eyes to Jesus on this day. You know, when I first came, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, um, in 724. When I first came to uh, Taft Avenue in uh, 2018, in 2019, the first sermon series we did, does anybody remember what it was? It was the Gospel of Mark. We did the Gospel of Mark. If 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 you're OG, right, and you're, I'm just kidding. OG means the original. Okay, never mind. All right. Let's just rewind. We'll start, or we'll, we'll, we'll edit when we post this on the website. All right. Um, but what was really interesting about the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Mark is a gospel, it's a story of Jesus. But one of the things that we noted is that it, it called its readers to reflect on and to answer the question who is Jesus? As a matter of fact, um, Robert Fowler, by his count, one of the scholars, a Mark scholar, noted there were, there were 114 questions that were asked in the Gospel of Mark. And of those 114 questions that were asked, 77 went unanswered. So I would argue that if you do not have 77 unanswered questions about Jesus, you might not really believe in him. I'm, that's a joke. I'm supposed to, that's a joke for everybody. Like, that the idea that, um, that obviously the Gospel of Mark invites us to be unsettled by Jesus, to have unanswered questions about Jesus, and be resettled in him in faith, but that the path of faith is oftentimes being unsettled by Jesus. And that sometimes our unsettling from Jesus is as important as our being resettled, that our, that our answers about Jesus sometimes don't precede our questions about Jesus, and those are things that we have to take seriously. And some of the questions that are asked about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Why does this man speak this way? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does he eat with sinners? Who then is this that even the wind and the water obey him? Where did this man get this wisdom? Why do your disciples not live by our tradition? The reader is invited to ask these questions and answer these questions, to become unsettled by Jesus and then resettled in faith. And when we read the Gospel of Mark and when we read it closely and we pay attention to it, what we see, we see Jesus. We see Jesus who has authority, all authority. Jesus who is in control of the demons Jesus who is in control of the wind. Jesus who is in control of disease. Jesus is powerful. Jesus challenges the traditions of humans in favor of the timeless truth of God's will. And in the Gospel of Mark, there's all these kind of encounters with Jesus, people challenging Jesus, and no one can match him. He bests everyone. 
He's no, he has no equal in the gospel. And then we get to this passage that Rollo Ray read for us today. This remarkable and unique episode in the gospels. And in a gospel that presents Jesus as the ultimate authority and representative of God, who is the master debater and confounds all of his opponents at every turn, here and here alone, he concedes that his challenger is correct and he is mistaken. He's defeated not by a learned rabbi, but by a Gentile, a woman. Two strikes in the rabbinic tradition that would disqualify her from having any spiritual insight. However, most of us here might find it no surprise that the faith and tenacity of a mother advocating for her daughter would be something that God takes particular note of and offers itself as a place where real faith in God is seen and is a particular reflection of the love of God. It's the only time Jesus ever loses an argument in any of the Gospels is with this woman as she begs on behalf of her daughter. And so as we take a short break from Ephesians, if you will, we'll get a little bit of Ephesians in here today. But what I want to do is I want to look at this passage again, take take stock of it and make some observations about it. You guys with me? I love this passage. I love that there's always these kind of things you don't expect Jesus to lose an argument. But he does here. He concedes. And it's beautiful. So let's look. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Did I already say that Jesus was mistaken about something? Man, this is, this is tough. I could get in trouble, maybe not from the moms, maybe from some of the theologians in here, but let's see if we can offer some perspective about this. All right, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 says this, and from there Jesus, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know, but he couldn't be hidden. That's a great line in the gospels, by the way. Jesus couldn't be hidden. Like you could preach a whole sermon on that, right? Verse 725, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. She came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. It says that the woman is Greek, that she's a Syrophoenician. It means that she was Greek-speaking. And this, is, this gives us a little sense that Jesus, most of the Gospels are in the nation of Israel. They're in the area of Jerusalem or Galilee. But this is a, a time in Jesus' ministry where he's traveled on foot outside of the boundaries of Israel, outside of the boundaries of the people of God, outside of the place where God was supposed to be. God was supposed to be in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And then beyond that, like those were the Gentile lands. Those were the people who didn't know about God. Those were the faithless people. Faith was in Israel. Disobedience was outside of Israel. But this woman, she's a Greek speaker. She's not a Hebrew speaker. She speaks Greek. She's Syrophoenician. And, and he's in its place that is in modern-day Lebanon. If you were to go there today, you could go to the city of Tyre. Um, and it's in Lebanon. Syrophoenician is, in that day, was Syria and Phoenicia. Hence, Syrophoenician. A little word scramble there. Thank you, Loray, for dealing with this. Brownie points for Loray making uh, Syrophoenician. But there's a number of boundaries that Jesus is crossing. 
He's gone out of the Jewish regions of Israel and into the Gentile regions. It doesn't say why, but presumably he's going to avoid the crowds and perhaps to have a little more time with his disciples, but maybe also that he's giving a little bit of a tip of the hand that this is where the gospel needs to go eventually. That the work that Jesus is doing is going to happen in Israel, but it cannot stay in Israel. Maybe he's giving a little bit of a preview, a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. So he crosses that physical boundary, but he's also now engaging with Gentile people. The last time in the Gospel of Mark that it happens is in uh, the Decapolis when he meets, uh, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he meets the man of the tombs who is probably a Gentile. And that region was a Gentile region. And he engages with him, unlikely. Crazy Larry, I think we called him, right? So he goes outside of Israel. He goes outside the people of God. And he's also engaging in conversation with a woman. Most rabbis were not publicly having conversations with women. Look at 727. And he said to her, so she makes this request. She makes a request. Um, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, Mark 7, 27. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right. This is where, um, when Jesus, I guess this is where it gets a little bit dicey, Right? Um, where you're like, okay, Jesus calls this woman a dog. I, I don't know if you caught that. Like, you're like, I'm in the business of making excuses for Jesus. Like, I, I, you know, like, no, like, no, he, she calls this woman, he calls this woman a dog. Let the children be fed first. Um, he's alluding to the priority of the mission of Jesus, the earliest followers of Jesus, that, that the children of Israel that even Paul will say that salvation comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, but this idea that first, that the nation of Israel, these are the children of God. And Jesus says something that shocks us. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This lady is a dog. He calls her a dog. Let me just talk about dogs for a second. Um, we have a dog. I'm not a huge dog fan. Buddy's our dog. Um, dogs today have a way better life, well, here and today, dogs have it way better than anywhere else and any time of history. Can we all get an amen out of that? Come on, everybody. Dogs. Like Jewish teachers would often refer to Gentiles as dogs, and it wasn't a compliment. They didn't have little strollers to put their dogs in. Dog, nobody, fed, nobody intentionally fed a dog. Dogs were scavengers. And look, we feed our dog, but our dog is a total apt scavenger. Like our dog, we, we walk out the front door, we come back in to like get something, and Buddy's like on the table. And we're like, Buddy, what are you doing on the table? He's like, oh, you know, he jumps down. Like he's a total scavenger. Even though we feed him so much, it's just like there's something about dogs. And I don't, maybe it's just our dog. Maybe your dog's perfect. Your dog's got manners, not a scavenger at all. I don't know. But short to say, dogs were not kept as pets in the ancient world, nor are they in most of the world today. You go to Turkey, and dogs are roaming the streets, and they've got actually public service thing. Nobody has a dog in their house, but the dogs are taken care of. It's okay. They're not, they're not cruel in Turkey, but there's, there's programs for dogs, but dogs have it all right. 
these days. But you would never intentionally feed a dog in the ancient world. Don't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, now, if you're traveling with Jesus, it just got interesting. This lady who's begging him, who's begging him to come and cast a demon out of her daughter, that he just calls her a dog. Like, if you, I don't know how many of you are like this, but like, I, I have this ambivalence about the, um, the uncomfortable moment. How many people love it when there's an uncomfortable moment? Somebody, oh, come on, there's plenty of people who do. I have friends who, like, their whole mission in life is to create an uncomfortable moment for people. Does anybody have anybody like that in your, in your life? See, yeah, there's the hands. I know who you are, everybody, okay? But the uncomfortable moment, some people, like, lean into it and they love it. They're like, yeah, this is awesome. This is interesting. If you're like me, you're like, ah, what just happened here? Like, what are you doing, okay? I don't know what you're like, but the uncomfortable moment totally hits in this moment. Jesus, this lady's begging him, and Jesus says, hey, we don't feed, the, we don't feed bread to the dogs. And if you're like, like, I could see like Peter and James and John, like, what? What did Jesus just say? Like, what, what is, what, what's happening? Like, I get it, because we're in Gentile lands, there's a woman, wow, what do we do here? Seven twenty-eight. So she enters into this exchange. She's rebuffed, but she leans even further in, 728. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The dogs eat from the crumbs is a, uh, was actually a well-known proverb of the day um, from Philostratus, um, this idea, uh, the dogs eat the crumbs. But a couple things about this woman. Um, in her response, she accepts the categorization, like, yes, I know I'm one of the dogs in your tradition. There's a humility about her. She recognizes even the priority of Israel. They are the children of God, and I'm not part of the children of God. She also recognizes that the bread of salvation is going to make it out of Israel, if not by crumb, if not by a full loaf, at least by crumbs. And that Jesus is the distributor of that bread. She recognizes the ultimate scope of the mission of Jesus and in so doing recognizes the heart of Jesus and the heart of his Father, that Jesus is not simply the Messiah of Israel, but the King of all creation. And I suppose one of the things I want to do this morning is just to ask the question, what can we learn from this woman in our own lives as we think about what we bring to Jesus, what can we learn from her? And the first thing is this, as we already noted, she is the only person to win an argument with Jesus. Pretty, you read the Gospels, Jesus is always like, he always gets the last word, he always, 
drops the mic, right? Jesus is like, he says something that nobody else can answer. He's always winning the exchanges, always winning the exchange. But in this interchange, it is the Syrophoenician woman who banters with Jesus and quote-unquote gets the best of him. I think the other thing that we can note is that she is a model of faith. Although she is a true outsider, the Apostle Paul would have referred to her as one who is far off. She's a true outsider to Israel's elite by virtue of her gender and her ethnicity. But she demonstrates the attributes of God that God is seeking his people. She has faith because she approaches Jesus. She believes that he is able to save her daughter and cast out the demon. In this way, she knows that Jesus is the person to address in her crisis. Here's a question for you, for me. Do you know that when you hit the hard time, that Jesus is the person that you address? She knew it. When she heard he was in town, she runs to where he is, and she falls down at his feet. She breaks the conventions. She, as much as Jesus is crossing the lines, she's crossing the lines as well. That is what faith does. When faith knows that Jesus is available, faith goes and falls down in front of him. Because faith knows that Jesus can address the crisis. Do you know that Jesus is the person to address in your crisis. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on, but I, I know this. If I'm going to live like the Syrophoenician woman, who turns out to be one of the good people, like, like one of the models of faith in the Gospels, a model of faith, then I've got to go to Jesus in crisis when the crisis hits. I think the other thing about her faith, it's persistent. She not, you know, she not only knows where to go, but she knows to stick it out. Like, even after Jesus, his initial rebuff of her, like, it's pretty harsh, too. Like, yeah, the dogs. She's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Even the dogs eat the crumbs, Jesus. Like, she comes back at him. Even when Jesus says no, she's like, she doesn't take no for an answer. She comes back to him. She steps out in greater dependence and greater vulnerability, and you wonder, you wonder even in this, if, if that's what Jesus' plan is with her, is to, to kind of draw out from her. I always love this image of like when people are training and um, they either have like someone's, uh, they're running, they're sprinters, they try to run, but they, they have a harness on them and people try to hold them back while they run. You think like, you're, you know, if you, just imagine what it would be like if, if God was like, all right, I want you to run as fast as you can. And you start running as fast as you can and he's just holding you steady. Like, why do they do that? They do that because they want to get stronger. And sometimes God might say, no, 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 I want you to run as fast as you can. He just holds you back. No, I told you to run as fast as you can. He just holds you back. No, I told you to go as fast as you can. <laughs> like, you're like, all right, Jesus, what, if, what is this? He's doing the same thing with her. Would you come again and ask? Would you come again and ask? Her faith is persistent. I think one of the particular interesting things as we are working through the book of Ephesians on our other Sundays as we come together, it's likely stories like this one 
that confirmed to the Apostle Paul that it's calling into Gentile, non-Jewish regions to Gentile people was right in line with the mission of Jesus. The bulk of the Gospels is in Israel to the Jews, but also in a story like this, tips his hand that this is going to get out. And the Apostle Paul is like, I'm all about that. I want to get this out. I want to get this out. It, it, you have to think that this is what he has in mind when he writes in, in Ephesians uh, 3.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Syrophoenician woman. He was probably thinking about a passage like this when he wrote, for he himself is our peace, who has, made both one, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's not believers and dogs. It's brothers and sisters. He came and preached peace to you who were far off. When Paul writes that in the book of Ephesians, he might have had the Syrophoenician woman in mind, this story. He actually went and preached peace to her. He gave her peace. He went to the far-off place. What else can we learn from her, from the Syrophoenician woman? She demonstrates humility. Jesus' initial rebuff is difficult. He calls her a dog, but she takes that in stride and assumes the humble position. I am a dog. I am not a part of the nation of Israel. I'm not one of the children, but there's still bread for me. I know there's bread for me. Jesus, there's bread for me. I know I don't deserve this. I know I'm not. I know I was not born into the right family. I know I was not born with all the gifts. I know that. I know that. She knows the humility. She acknowledges that she has no place at the table. That her place is to fall at Jesus' feet and to beg for mercy. I think one of the things about this woman, and in the Gospel of Mark, um, there, there's plenty of this, but, and, and sometimes we don't, we don't really notice this, but um, she's, she's unnamed. We don't know her name. It's not that she doesn't have a name, we just, we don't know her name. Like, and in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we know almost, we know lots of people's names. Like, there's Peter and Andrew and James and John and their father Zebedee and the 12 disciples, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Thaddeus, Judas, Jairus. Jesus has a mother named Mary. We even hear about a blind guy named Bartimaeus. We know that guy's name. We hear even the guy who carries the cross, Simon of Cyrene. We even know his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. We know all those people's names. But Mark will search for faithful people that are named in the book of Mark. And there are various levels of faithfulness among the named. I mean, just think about Peter, right? Like Peter's a named person. I'm Peter, the rock, right? Peter, I'm this rock, I will build my church. But his faith like ebbs and flows, it falters, like he abandons and he denies. Peter has his victories, but he will oftentimes get Jesus wrong. The named in the book, those who are named in the book, will often fail in their discipleship following Jesus. 
But Mark has this really interesting thing in his gospel, and the Syrophoenician woman is one. Mark will use the unnamed in the gospel, particularly unnamed women in the gospel, to offer a model of what faithful discipleship looks like. The first unnamed woman in the book is the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter. This lady grabs his robe. He feels the power going out of her. And he turns to her and he's like, he's all, who touched me? Who touched me? And he finds the woman and he's like, hey, your faith has made you well. What's her name? We don't know. All we know about her is in the moment of crisis, she goes to grab Jesus. We'd have no idea who her name is. But she is a model of discipleship. The woman at the treasury, we set up, remember we set up the treasury, we threw the coins in, they made all the noise. You guys remember this? Okay, maybe you didn't. I always assume everybody remembers everything I say, but maybe you don't. That's okay. There's a poor woman at the treasury who throws in two small coins. What's her name? What's her name? We don't know. Let's just call her the poor widow. But Jesus says when she throws in the two small coins, he's all, did you hear that? Someone just gave more than everybody else. What's her name? We don't know. But she's a model of discipleship. In the Gospel of Mark, the last one, after this woman, the Syrophoenician woman, is the woman who anoints Jesus at the house of Simon the leper. What's her name? What's her name? We don't know. But as Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the last time, before he's going to die, she not only anoints him as king, but she anoints him for burial at the same time. What's her name again? We don't know, but she has more insight about who Jesus the Messiah is, the king who comes to die, than anyone else. We don't know her name, but she is a model of discipleship. And today we have this one more, a surprising woman, a woman, a mother, who takes a posture of humility, remains unnamed, and yet offers us a picture of what a model disciple is looks like. I think just in this last week, I've been, you know, Mother's Day is coming on the calendar, and so I'm paying attention, but just surrounded by some examples of mothers advocating for their children, for good or bad. I mean, let's just face it, moms, sometimes, you know, it can be a little bit overbearing, you know, I, you know sometimes, I don't know. I don't, want to, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but, you know, moms have a special energy, do they not, when they advocate for their children? Like, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's all awesome. Sometimes it's like, sometimes you're like, hey, mom, I'm like 40 years old. Like, I, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. right. Right? But there's always a special energy for moms when they advocate for their kids. You know, we have a friend whose daughter is battling lung cancer, and we follow her on Facebook, and she is just a rallier of people around her daughter. She rallies people, like, with an energy that I've never really seen before. We've prayed for healing for one of our friend's sons, 
Just the energy with which that mom rallied around her son and how she used that to bring people together. You know, even in our own family, I watch, I watch my wife advocate for our kids. There is a special energy, a special kind of energy when it comes to a mom advocating for her children. We see it with this woman, the Syrophoenician woman. There's nothing quite like a mother and her children. And we have to imagine that the strength of this image reflects really the character of the creator of mothers. Where did motherhood even come from? Oftentimes we think about God as male, but God is neither male nor female. He's the creator of male and female. He's the creator of fatherhood. He's the creator of motherhood. Like, where do all these characteristics come from? They come from God. God is beyond gender. He's the creator of gender. In Ephesians 5, there's this one phrase, a really, a, just a really concise theological phrase. It says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And I was thinking this week, like, I can't think about many other things um, where, like, just thinking about you mothers out there, um, and this is, my, this is my nod to moms, is like, like it just kind of blows my mind that, like, you know, um, I'm here because I took resources from my mom. Like, my mom, like, she, her body, I, I drew off of her body to form my own body. Like, God made it that way. Like, you're here because you stole resources. You didn't steal them, but the, the idea that you took, you took from your mom. Like, that's how you grew. That's how you became a child. Like, we would joke, Kelly's like, I'm tired today. I think I grew a limb from one of the kids, you know? Like, in, in, when she was pregnant, she, we would joke about that idea. Like, yeah, I grew an arm today. Like, it, but this idea that, this is the idea that, that moms, without really their permission, a child would draw the energy from them. And draw the nutrients from them. You think about that kind of self-sacrifice, that self-emptying, that, that's a model of self-emptying. And whether you like it or not, moms, that's what happened. There was, there was mandatory self-emptying in order to have a baby, right? And I think the idea, like, when we look at Jesus, it says that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. It wasn't, but here's the deal, it wasn't mandatory self-emptying with Jesus. It was voluntary self-emptying. And I know a lot of moms, obviously, having a, like, it's voluntary. But you think about the weight of that, you think about the weight of that, especially, man, especially this week with, with the Roe versus Wade thing and the Supreme Court and all that stuff and, the, and the, just the, the fever-pitched rhetoric about the issue of Roe versus Wade and abortion and you reflect on this idea that the weight of motherhood is not always embraced. And sometimes, and I don't have any stones to throw about that. That is a heavy weight. If someone's not ready for it, that's a heavy weight. I think the other, on the other end, obviously, there, so in the, in the midst of this, this, the compassion on moms or would-be moms, like just the compassion on a Mother's Day for those who would-be mothers and just why would, any, why would anybody like end a pregnancy? It's because there's no hope. They feel like they have no hope. And for me, I think in this debate, and I, man, I, I read some things this week that were written by believers that were just out and out mean. And look, 
I'm pro-life. I, I believe that the church has been pro-life since its inception. Back when in the day when people would expose babies, the church would go out and they would go gather them up and start up orphanages. Like it was that was, that was the church feels like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna be pro-life. We're gonna we're gonna if, if there are people that are unwanted, we'll take them. And I would just say this, for me, like the way I feel like, if there's anything that's gonna change. There needs to be an abundance of hope that's out there. An abundance of hope. I want Jesus to come and make all things right. I want that. But until he does, I will obey him and I will love my rivals. I will love them that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Man, if there's anything, look, if you know anything about me in the three and a half years I've been here, it will be this. If we're going to win, we're going to win on compassion. We're not going to win on raw power. Look, when Jesus returns and he makes all things right, awesome. He has the authority to exert all power. I'm on his team. I love Jesus. Until he comes, I will obey him. And by obey, I mean I will not, I will not denigrate my rivals. And this is important. And the other thing, I have to have a commitment to this too. Like if I hear other people doing that, I have to say something. It's not in the path of Jesus. You might win, you might say, but it's right. Look, Jesus was not just about being right. He was, but it was about how you're right. It's a counterintuitive sense. And I know, look, I, the, way, the way this debate is going to be won or lost in our culture is going to be by compassion and kindness. If every woman who, 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 who becomes pregnant does not want a pregnancy knows I can, have, I can have medical care, I can have a community around me, I know that there's hope, I know that there's a family who would love this baby, I know that I can make it through this because the church is out there and loves me. That is how this gets won. Not by making some snarky comment on social media that will not win anything. Anyway, all right. I'm getting a little worked up, but look, the way, it, the way of Jesus is the way of compassion. He will come and make all things right, but until he does, we will follow him in his teaching. <sighs> okay. And this is why, look, this is why we, we have a commitment, the pastors in the city of Orange, we have a commitment to be public, to be public believers, to sing on the steps. What a beautiful name this is, the steps of City Hall, what a beautiful name this is, but we want to have the compassion too. And we want to just note that how many, just as we think about, as we kind of land this plane today, um, just how many unnamed women are out there who have questions about Jesus? I think the, the beautiful thing is they would have had a prominent place in the Gospel of Mark. Unnamed women who have questions about Jesus, they would make it into Mark. 
Jesus would find a way to them. We might not know their name, but Mark says, hey, you want to know, you want to know, model disciples, find the unnamed women. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come today and we, we lay ourselves before you. We have, there are so many things that are going on in our world that either might make us mad or worked up, or even as a mom, maybe even just today as a mom, you're just, you, you're soaking it in. This is an awesome day, and, and rightfully so. Father, we recognize that you meet us where we are. Father, we recognize that you have an opinion about how we live our lives. We pray that we might live in a manner worthy, we might walk in a manner worthy, even as you walk with us. We thank you today for our moms who have emptied themselves on our behalf. We thank you today for Jesus who is the ultimate example of that kind of self-emptying love. We pray, Father, that you would make us more like your son Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.